Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. This week's episode is sponsored by Jane Stafford Textiles. Getting started can be the most difficult part of any weaving project, and when you sign up for Jane's newsletter, you'll receive a free PDF download of Project Planning 101, a weaver's toolkit. This guide is full of Jane's wisdom and includes worksheets and reference charts to make starting your next weaving project easier. You'll also get to learn more about the JST Online Guild, which offers in-depth instruction for weavers of all experience levels. Your yearly subscription gives instant access to a library of foundational videos and workshops from previous years, plus each episode from the new season as they are released throughout the year, 10 episodes in all. Each season explores a theme, and in 2019, the Guild is pushing the boundaries of plain weave. I signed up for Jane's Guild immediately after talking to her for the podcast, and you should come join the fabulous community over there. You can sign up for the free guide at bit.ly slash jstguild, which is also linked to in my show notes. Thank you so much, Jane, for sponsoring the podcast. Hello, it's me again. I hope you all enjoyed last week's episode with Just Yarn's very own Sarah Resnick. I'd love to hear feedback of what you all thought of the episode. Also, feel free to suggest other folks that you think would be a great addition to the series. You can email me at lashawn at justyarn.com. That's L-A-C-H-A-U-N at just. G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com. This week on the podcast, we have Casey Lynn of Fiber Farm, a textile artist and weaver who studied fashion but decided to sustainably raise alpacas on a small homestead in the Tennessee foothills. Hello, Casey, and welcome to the Just Charm podcast. I'm super excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you found your way towards farming? Um, sure. I didn't grow up in a farming background. I grew up outside Chattanooga in a, in a place called Saudi Daisy. And I went to school for apparel design uh, at Auburn. And that's where I kind of came face to face with um, how disconnected we are from our our clothing and uh, the the vicious fashion cycle that is fast fashion. And so I, um, I kind of got turned off by, you know, what I was pursuing in school, that it was creating such a problem for the environment. And so I kind of geared my endeavors towards outdoor apparel and more like technical gear. Um, and so that led me, I had an internship out in Seattle for a company called Cavu and while I was out there interning, I went and spent some time on the San Juan Islands and went camping by myself. And that's where I first ran into alpacas. There's an alpaca farm out there. And, you know, you just can imagine this pristine environment. Um, you're right on the water and these animals are just hanging out. And so I got to see that, um, you know, you could you could still create... Um, textiles and still create garments uh, and do it sustainably and also get to raise these really awesome um, funny looking animals in the process. 
So that's kind of what led me full circle from a design background to kind of, uh, you know, igniting the idea that I could do something more, you know, of a farming realm and start from the beginning. So I had the opportunity um, to move to Tennessee and live on a farm and start, um, start a business with a friend of mine from college. And so uh, after living in Seattle for a couple of years, I returned back to Tennessee, moved on to a 50 acre farm in the middle of nowhere in uh, Prospect, Tennessee. And that's kind of where I got like a firsthand glimpse at, um, you know, what it, what it meant to wake up every single day and, you know, open the gate for the chickens and, you know, wake up at two in the morning when the pigs are having babies, um, you know, to cut umbilical cords and, you know, like the nitty gritty of it. And so I got a full year of uh, immersion into that life living on my friend's family farm. And so that kind of, you know, showed me, okay, I, I can still really, I can really get into this. And so I purchased my foundation, Heard of Alpacas, in March of 2012 from a woman who had a herd of 80. And um, kind of unfortunate situation for her. She was going through a divorce and she was um, getting rid of her entire herd. She gave me one heck of a deal. And so that was how I was able to purchase these animals that were financially out of my reach, realistically, in any other situation. Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, I was in the right place at the right time for that. I've been doing research for a while. I've been looking, you know, to see, is it alpacas? Is it sheep? What does that look like for me? And I would really drifted towards alpacas because... For me to process them by myself, it made more sense to have an animal that doesn't have lanolin in its fiber. So I don't have to, you know, that takes that mm, stuff out. Interesting. Can you walk us through the difference between um, alpacas and sheep? Sure. Um, well, I mean, many more well-versed um, shepherds and shepherdesses can tell you more of like uh, the veterinary differences between them and their stomachs and all of that. But for me... Um, for me, as like a newbie and someone just looking into it, I saw um, what appeared to be as, uh, you know, for processing, the sheep have um, lanolin in their fiber, um, whereas the alpacas don't. And so when processing, I don't have to scour the alpaca fiber. I can take it, I can share it right off the animal. Um, and skirt it and then start carting it. Whereas with sheep's wool, I would need to scour it, meaning to wash it, um, before I could start working with it. Mm -hmm. And is this the oils that you're referring to? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep, the oil. And you'll see lanolin in all kinds of um, beauty products and cosmetic products. It's, it's very useful and functional. Um, but when you want to work with it and, and diet, especially as I like to dye, um, my fiber, a lot of the times, you know, that oil is going to provide a block against the dyes. And so it would need to be fully removed um, before the fibers processable. Mm, it like it creates a impermeable layer. Mm -hmm, exactly. And you would want to and that's something that's going to be removed at the mill anyways, any kind of wool garment that anyone's purchasing or even, um, any kind of wool or wool blend yarn has had the lanolin removed at a mill that's been processed 
you know, on a, um, a much larger scale. Interesting. Do you use a mill to process your yarns? I do not. Um, which is why another reason why alpacas seem more desirable because I do everything by hand, um, which seems kind of crazy, <laughs> but, um, and it is, um, but I only have, I have eight alpacas. Um, and so that provides me with enough fiber to kind of hand process it throughout the year so that once I go to shear again in the spring, I've kind of, I've used my, um, you know, eight um, fleeces up. And so I'm not, I don't have too many that I'm overwhelmed. And how exactly do you make your yarns? What are the stages that it goes through from the alpaca to the consumer? So for me, um, I shear in the spring. Um, like I said, I have eight and I will say, <laughs> I talk about having alpacas over sheep, but I will say full disclosure, I do have three sheep. <laughs> um, Two of which are fiber sheep. Everyone that's a farmer knows if you're in it long enough, somebody's going to want to donate some animals, and it's hard to say no. And so I have two really nice fiber sheep for my friend Lori um, that are wonderful, and they're a great addition. And so I do, and I also hand process them. So in the spring, I shear them. Um, everyone gets a haircut right before it gets hot. And um, with the alpacas, after their uh, fiber is shorn, um, it's split up into three different qualities. And so the blanket fleece uh, is from their backs and it's the top quality. And that's the, that's the stuff that I'll take and spin and use for hats and scarves um, and hiring garments. Um, the second quality fiber is from their necks. Um, and it's, it's almost just as soft. It's just a little bit shorter. And for the most part, I still continue to spin the second quality fiber. And it goes, um, I use it a lot for weavings and embellishments and stuff. Um, I also use it when I'm teaching people to spin. I use seconds um, just because it's not as good as first. But I think that if anyone's learning to spin, they should at least learn to spin with a longer stable length. Um, and then the third quality is the leg and the stomach fiber that's shorn off the animals. Um, and that I use to felt and for various projects um, when I do farm tours with kids and stuff. So everything gets used in a little bit different capacity um, depending on the quality and softness. Interesting. So you mentioned that you also are a natural mm -hmm. dyer. What are some of the things that you choose to, to grow on your farm that you use to dye your yarns? Well, for the most part, I'm really not growing anything. I'm just not eradicating it. So like pokeberry, pokeberries growing all over the place. Most people would probably cut it down. I let it grow. I've got walnuts growing, um, you know, on a black walnut tree. Um, I've got goldenrod that's growing wild. And, um, and then I forage for a lot of sumac and um, osage. Um, from a tree that grows in the valley down here locally as well. So I'm not, um, you know, I'm not growing indigo. I wish I could say I was. It's definitely on the list of things to do. Um, I know that that's, that's kind of in your wheelhouse. So, yes. <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, that's something I'm very interested in. Um, I've done a little bit of, I've grown woad before. 
Mm. Um, but for me, I like to work with dyes that if you just throw them in the pot, they will produce. Um, and then just, and you know, indigo is one of those ones that requires a little bit more coaxing. Yes, there's definitely a lot of science to mm-hmm. uh, a good indigo vet. Which, which makes me respect it all the more when people can come and share their knowledge because that is one thing that I still um, have a lot to learn about as indigo. It's so interesting that you forage for your dyes. I, um, when I started natural dyeing, I was still living in New York, and I used to also forage for pokeberries. So I totally understand um, what you mean when you say throw it in the pot and just see what happens. And just see what happens, yeah. And it's, you know, I like I like being outside. I like hiking. Um, you know, I like adventures that are that are somewhat spontaneous and kind of questionable like pulling over on the side of the road at a random <laughs> spot and like asking a random person if you can cut some goldenrod out of their pasture and you know every single time they've been more than willing to be like yes whatever you're doing sweetheart bless your heart go for it you know um and so that's been a fun way to you know also meet people in my community too um, give a reason, you know, to stop by and say, "Hey, what are you doing around here? You know, this is what I got going on. Let me let me harvest these walnuts from you." Mm-hmm. So, so what is the surrounding community like for you um, around your farm? Are there other textile farms or textile farmers? Oh, um, no. So I live um, I live in Grundy County, which is on the Cumberland Plateau, and there is a lot of coal mining in the area um which is no longer and so it's a very rural place um the soil up here isn't the best for farming Mm. um there's not a lot of farming which is why the alpacas are they do they do really well um they have pretty efficient stomachs and so they don't need that much you know rich pasture where they're native to they're not used to having um very rich pasture anyways and so I'm, I, I, you know, I'm only operating on three and a half acres, too. So I'm operating on a pretty small scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, not a lot, of, not a lot of alpaca farmers, not a lot of fiber farmers. Um, there's a, there's a couple of folks up here doing, you know, raising sheep. And there's, there are a few alpaca farmers that have um, other animals as well. But we are few and far between. And everyone knows who we are, um, which is kind of nice. It's a wonderful community. I love living up here. And my neighbors are absolutely incredible. But when I first got here, they did think I was a little funny. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't quite figure out if it was an exotic petting zoo or um, what I had going on. So, yeah, it's great up here. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, So you mentioned that your farm is three acres. How are you utilizing Mm -hmm. the space? So I have, when I moved here, it was just one big pasture and 90% of it was pasture. Um, there's a little bit of woods and Creek. And then, you know, my front yard is, my front yard is very small. I've tried to make the yard as, as little as possible and utilize as much of the, um, the pasture for the animals. And so, um, since moving here, it's turned from one big pasture. I've got about five different partitions right now. Um, and I'd like to have eight, uh, at the end of the day so that I can rotate, um, 
mainly in the winter, you know, when things start slowing down to, so they're not as intensively grazing. But yeah, it's, um, the, the house is a little old farmhouse and the, the barn is, it's crazy, insanely big. Um, it's like 40 by 40 with enough stalls for like Noah and all of his animals. Um, <laughs> and it, you know, I, I've asked several people, you know, did this, did, did this place, was there more land, you know, and then they sold it to other people. And, and everyone's told me that no, the, the previous fellow that owned it just wanted to build a big old barn on it. So I feel pretty blessed to have this ginormous barn, um, you know, to kind of work under with all these animals now. Yeah, that makes a huge difference when you're looking for land, if there's already some type of a barn infrastructure. It was, and that's kind of what drew me to it. I I found this place on the internet and um, it kind of ticked all the boxes. You know, the house was, it was moving ready. You know, there wasn't like a hole in the roof. And so I was (laughs) excited about that because I've definitely bought a foreclosure and I didn't ever want to I didn't ever want to do the fixer upper um, like I'd done before. I'm, I've checked that off the list, and so having that, having the building and the and the one big perimeter fence and the barn was kind of it, it sealed the deal, you know. And it, it really, um, Tracy said he was just a name on the map until I I moved here, and and now I love it. I love it more every day. Is the area that you live in considered a rural community? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I would say um, we got two traffic lights in town and, um, you know, but we got everything you need. There's like the standard couple restaurants, you know, there's a um, a couple gas stations and a grocery store. And I mean, we even have this amazing thrift store um, and a couple antique stores and stuff. And so it's everything you need. And then, you know, within 15, 20 minutes, you can get to a larger grocery store and and all the Mm. amenities you need so you mentioned also that sustainability is a huge part of the way that you farm can you speak to some of the ways in which you've employed sustainable strategies on your farm sure um I like to joke with my neighbor because he's he's I love him and he's a he's an engineer um and he'll you know I'll be uh, weed eating my ditch line, you know, and, and mowing the grass and he'll be spraying like right across the road. And we're like, you know, I love him to death. Um, you know, we just wave at each other and kind of agree to disagree on our ways. Mm. But I'm pretty stubborn in that, you know, in that sense. Um, I don't spray a lot. I don't, well, I don't spray at all. Um, unless it's a wasp kind of coming at me. (laughs) Um, you know, and then I, you know, (laughs) then I break the rules and, Anything I have in my hand, I spray at it. But, um, but yeah, for the most part, I'm, you know, I, even like with my Airbnb, I didn't run plumbing. Um, there is a shower in it, but the, the toilet's a compost toilet, um, which kind of limits my target market on that, on the front of the house, but also, you know, kind of gets people thinking about, um, what our basic amenities are and, how blessed we are as humans to use the bathroom in clean water when people walk miles and miles for it. Um, so I like to leave little tidbits like that around, you know, for my guests. And then also the same thing for my guests when we do the farm tours, they just use a, a compost pit style toilet. And there's conversation about that um, with the kids. 
And then also, um, you know, I heat my house with firewood. Um, I die with natural dyes. You know, I'm I try, trying to employ as many local folks as possible when I can. You know, when I make enough to have employees to help me out, it's always somebody super local. Um, my neighbor across the street, she's amazing. She um, crochets all my my kids hats for me so all the yarn I spin and then she's an amazing crocheter and so we do a little situation where I just kind of write up a little list of what I need and then she does it in her spare time um, so it's nothing it's nothing huge it's just little things here and there you know but it's just taking the time I feel like to be conscious about how I'm running my business and who I'm surrounding myself with and and trying to make as much of an impact as I can as one person when I can. Is it difficult to find labor in your area? No, it's, it's not necessarily difficult to find the labor. I think it's aligning, um, aligning schedules, you know, because for me, I'm not, I'm not necessarily able to employ someone full time. So it's just me, you know, I do everything on my own. And so when I need help, it's usually like, I have a really big group of kids for a farm tour and I want to make sure, you know, for safety purposes and also people answering questions, you know, I can, I have extra people. And so I have friends and folks that could come and help that I pay, but it, you know, it's only like, Oh, I need you for three hours on Tuesday or four hours on Wednesday. So it's a, it's more of a situation of um, scheduling, finding people whose schedules can align to work with that because I understand no one's going to hold out for three hours a week, you know? Um, but then it's, you know, it's also been great. Like, um, with my neighbor, she's, uh, she used to work at a sewing factory. And so anything I could think of to ask for her help on, she's already well-trained, um, and super skilled at it. And same with crocheting. And so with that respect, it's just me planning ahead of time enough to give it to her, so that she has the time to do it because she's got two boys she's raising as well. So, so yeah, it's not a problem of finding the labor at all. It's just making it, I guess, kind of fitting the puzzle pieces and making it work um, with my uh, budget in their time. <laughs> right. <laughs> so previously on the podcast, we had a farmer who talked about some of the ways in which it's difficult to continue farming. He was a cotton farmer mm -hmm. um, and it was difficult it's difficult for him to create a viable income and he sort of um, pointed to some of the ways in which big ag big agriculture um, is becoming more difficult to participate in America um, as a small mm -hmm. farmer as a smaller scale farmer do you have anything say to add to the conversation about that yeah I you know I big investments are scary to me. I, when I started, um, both this business and the metal fabrication business, um, with my previous partner, my parents said, you know, my, my stepdad in particular was like, you know, 98% of businesses fail. And he didn't say that to like hurt my feelings. He said it just to be realistic. And so I've always gone into it with a very, like, invest small and like build slow over time. And so seeing like big agriculture and 
you know, just the tractor alone, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in seeds. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just can't imagine, like, I, I have, you know, just being 100% honest, when I first bought my foundation herd of alpacas, I spent $2,500, you know. And so my foundation investment was tiny, tiny compared to some of these other big farmers. And so my, um, I guess the way I've always done is, is I've, I started small and then I just, you know, built as I went and, and I'd never uh, borrowed more money. Um, you know, I, I saved the money and then I purchased, I guess I kind of made, I made do until I could buy it outright. Um, and so I think that it's, um, it's scary, you know, it's, it's intimidating to think about starting small and doing it and going for it. But, um, you know, I make it, I make it work by not biting off more than I can chew. Um, and I also don't put all my eggs in one basket. So for doing this endeavor, you know, like I, I mean, I wish I could sit and spin yarn all day and be an artist and just do that, but it's not realistic. And so I've had to, um, you know, be smart. And so I rent out the front half of the farm on Airbnb and I do farm tours and I go and speak and I teach workshops, all of which, all of these things I love to do. Um, but they also are essential to financially supporting what I want to do. And anytime I think like I can get comfortable and just kick my feet up and, and be an artist, you know, that's just not realistic. Um, and so, yeah, I, my hat's off to big time ag because I can't even imagine, um, you know, the upfront investment and the blood, sweat and tears and, and having all of it on the line. Um, because I've, I've kind of built my business so that if like one pillar is not strong, I can kind of prop it up with another pillar. If that makes sense, you know, even if it's, um, you know, I'll go and shoot a wedding or be second shooter at a photo shoot. I mean, I have, you know, I'll do whatever it takes, you know, to pay the bills when things aren't going well, you know, or slow months, especially during the middle of winter. So that's, that's kind of how I've made it work. Um, you know, slowly stepping away from the art shows and leaving the farm as much, you know, for like long weekends and then trying to do more of like the Airbnb, Airbnb and uh, workshops has kind of been my strategy lately. Yeah, I totally understand. I think one of the strong suits that I feel textile farmers or textile based farmers have who work on small scales is that we're often artists and we do have the ability to sort of rely on other skills and to freelance in various ways I agree yeah I completely agree um yeah I want you know if someone needs a website designed or something I'm you know I'm always happy to hop in (laughs) and do that when uh (laughs) when the bank account looks a little light So given some of the difficulties of farming and owning your own business, what has kept you inspired in this journey? Um, honestly, this, the most surprising thing um, of all of this is, you know, I, um, I don't have children of my own, but I love having kids out here. 
and seeing kids light up and have fun and learn something and just let go of their insecurities and their, I don't know, it's just so great to see them, you know, run down by the creek and play or even if it has nothing to do with fiber, you know, even if it's just being outside and seeing some weird bug or whatever it's it's the kids it's it's having a space for kids to come and do their thing um has kept me going on hard days for sure um which is kind of surprising that's surprised me um and what i like deep down think about it, it's like man it is it's it's definitely um you know showing kids that you can you can be whatever you want to be if you're willing to work hard and that it doesn't have to fit the script of what most people are telling them. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Do you have any new projects or any new things that you're working on that you would like people to know about? Um, I just put out a workshop um, schedule for the fall and winter. I'm collaborating with some Cool folks. Um, my buddy Aaron is going to come and teach a couple workshops. And then I'm trying this new overnight um, textile retreat. We're going to go do some hiking and we're going to camp. Those that want to camp, those that don't, um, I've got my front room reserved for those. But uh, my friend Ashley, who's also um, amazing outdoor um, adventure and seamstress, she's going to collaborate with me on that. So it's been fun designing experiences for people that are fun and laid back, but also have an educational component to them. Um, I've been doing a lot of that lately. That sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. I would love to join in one of those hikes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we um, we just hike down to the bottom of this waterfall and do some weaving. Um, there's some really wonderful hikes in the area, and so I'm pretty blessed to be able to just hop in the car and be able to share that with folks that come here too. It sounds awesome. I'm sure some of the weavers listening to the podcast would be interested in joining you. What is a way that people can find your website and sign up? So my website is fiberfarm.net. I'm on Facebook. I'm really good at uh, marketing myself here. I'm on Facebook. Uh, and I guess it's Fiber Farm and then Instagram is Fiber Farm as well. Um, yeah, all the standard ones. Um, but yeah, or any if anyone has any questions, you know, I've my phone number's all over the place. So y'all can you can call me and ask questions because sometimes people are like camping in the woods with this random farm with these random people. What's going on? And I understand because uh, it is kind of weird, especially around Halloween. But we're going to do it, and we're excited. Uh, I'm so excited. And we're going to tell maybe some ghost stories, too. <laughs> ghost stories in the woods, weaving, hiking. Yeah. It sounds like a ball. <laughs> yep. And if you get scared, you can go inside. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> That's great. Um, um, so it's been really great having you on the podcast today. Um, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts who want to support farmers? Um, sure. So in this area in the Southeast or anywhere, really, there's, um, you can hop on fibershed.com 
And there are producer directories all over the U.S., all over the world now, of local farmers that are producing amazing um, supplies and products for um, for weavers and artists and anyone in general. And the one in the South is um, Southern Appalachia Fiber Shed, safibershed.com. Um, and you can check that out. But really the best way to do, in my opinion, is to check out local fiber shows um, and go meet the people that are growing the products. Um, Cause we're, we're an interesting bunch. I'm sure, you know, we're never a dull moment with us. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you too. That's a wrap. I hope you all enjoyed listening in on the conversation as much as I enjoyed talking to Casey. She's super funny and I encourage all of you to visit her farm and sign up for her workshops. For more information on the products Casey sells, as well as to sign up for some of her activities, you can check out our show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode 39. Thank you to Jane Stafford Textiles for sponsoring the podcast. Don't forget to sign up for the Jane Stafford Textiles newsletter to receive that free PDF download of Project Planning 101, a Weaver's Toolkit, and to learn more about the online guild. You can sign up at bit.ly slash jstguild. The JST Online Guild offers in-depth weaving instruction in the comfort of your own home. Subscribers have instant access to a library of foundational videos and workshops from previous years, plus each episode from the all-new 2019 season as they are released throughout the year. Ten episodes in all. It's truly a fabulous resource at an accessible price, and many of you have reached out to me after last week's episode to say that Jane is instrumental in your own weaving journey, so make sure you check that out. It's bit.ly slash jstguild. Next week on the podcast, Sarah's talking with Catherine Amide, a jacquard weaver and teacher and the instructor at the Jacquard Center in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Tune in next Monday to hear that conversation. And until next time, happy weaving! <laughs>